Arcia grounded, and it's going to get into center field, and the Braves are going to take the lead. Hey now. What's up, all? Sportscaster Season 13, Episode 11. My name is Steve Bennett. I've been meaning to get this show up for a few days now. Um, first of all, the point of it is I wanted to get an interview with someone to preview the Champions League final. It seemed like a really big deal, something I wanted to do. I reached out to the perfect person, I think. Earlier in the season, maybe the end of last season, we had two guys on. They had written a book called Messi versus Ronaldo, or Messi and Ronaldo. They also wrote a book called The Club, which was actually on Ted Lasso this year. Coach Beard was reading it. And one of the guys was a guy named Joshua Robinson. Uh, he's in France. He covers the Premier League and European soccer pretty closely. Um, and he's the perfect foil to my Italian homerism. Uh, and Joshua Robinson will join us first. Uh, as a preview to the Champions League. Now, when I reached out to him, I said, are you available anytime between now and the Champions League? And he said, yes, tomorrow. And there was still, I knew I still wanted to post this closer to the Champions League final, which is Saturday. So a couple of the things that we said have happened now. Like I think we said, you know, PSG hadn't won yet. They did. I don't think the Germany... Uh, race was over yet uh, Bayern has won that and also the Roma uh, the Roma and uh, Sevilla game was played the Europa League championship was played and he predicted Sevilla would win that and he was right I was wrong I picked Roma on that one um, so that is the first interview then we'll do the book club and then Michael Thompson Thompson not Thompson but Thompson T-H-O-M-S-E-N, Thompson, uh, will join us to talk about his book, Cage Wars. More about that in the book club. So that's what's on deck for this 11th episode of season 13. Like I said, been meaning to put it up for a minute, um, but finally got around to getting the 24-inch podcast up, and then I gave that a day or two, and now this one goes up. Uh, Quickly, first things first. (sighs) Jack Eichel's going to win the Stanley Cup, isn't he? That little cock-sucking, piss-pot, piece-of-shit wormed his way into a Stanley Cup. Unbelievable. Makes me want to puke. Come on, Florida. Show some pride, will you? <sighs> Brutal. Uh, Roma, as I mentioned a second ago, did not bring the trophy home to Italy. We will not have five teams in the Champions League next year. We were so close to having that trophy locked up. You know, if Juventus could have just finished the game against Sevilla, it would have been Juventus and Roma. That would have came home for sure. Sevilla pulls that one out. Give up a goal in the first half. I thought for sure Roma was winning at that point. I thought Jose Mourinho would find a way to bring it home. Unfortunately, they conceded an own goal 56 minutes in or something. 
And that was too early. They got it to penalties. And then, I mean, 4-1 to one in the penalties or something. It was brutal how bad they lost the penalties. Uh, so no trophy there. We'll see about Fiorentina and West Ham tomorrow. That's the one I'm most confident in. I'll be very surprised if Fiorentina win, doesn't win that game. You'll hear what our guest thinks in a few minutes. But I'll be shocked if that one doesn't come home to Italy. And then we'll see on Saturday. Uh, like I said on the last episode, I think Inter is a dangerous team. There's no reason not to think Man City will win. And I think that makes Inter dangerous. Uh, so we'll see. We'll talk more about that next time. I want to talk more about the Azuri right now real quick. Because, look, it, I like to dream big when it comes to Italy. I love Italy in a way that's different than all my teams, right? The Saints are my number one team. There's no doubt about it. I have been a diehard Saints fan since I was seven years old. And I wear the black and gold almost every day. I love to be a Saints fan. I got a giant fat head right next to me in a room that's full of Saints shit, right? So I, they're my number one team. But when it comes to Italy, it's different. It's just different. It's about heritage. It's about family. And it's about just loving the shirt. Because the shirt represents where I come from and my life and the heroics of my grandparents traveling here so that I could be born here in the greatest country in the world and live a better life and have more opportunity. So I dream big when it comes to Italy. And right now we're in a unique opportunity. I mentioned the Under-20 World Cup has been going on. And Italy has done great. They beat Brazil in the first game, lost the second game. Won the third, qualified second in the group, beat England in the round of 16, and then went on to beat Colombia in the quarterfinals. They're on to the semifinals. United States lost. Brazil lost. A lot of big teams are out. It's down to Italy, Israel, uh, Uruguay, and Italy's opponent. I can't, you know, I can't even remember. Right now who the four teams are. But Italy has a chance to make a final. They've been in this game the last three under 20 World Cups. And haven't advanced to a title game yet. So it's a big hump for them. Cassidy uh, has been the number one player in this tournament. He leads in goals from the midfield. He's a fantastic talent. And they're loaded with top end talent. I think they're the best. They have the best top three players of any team in the tournament. And they have a legitimate chance to win this whole thing on Sunday. This week, the lineups came out for the under-21 team, which includes some national team-level players like Scalvini and the midfielder from AC Milan, who should be on the national team and are playing under-21. And that under-21 roster looks very, very good. And it's a team that in the under-21 20, 20, under Euros should compete to win it. Also this week, the roster, an updated 23-man roster for the Nations League final for the senior team was released. And it's a, and the, 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 the Inter Milan players are going to play. Barella, Bastoni, you know, DeMarco, they'll be there. And it's a much better team with those guys added in. And... It just, if you're dreaming big, if you're an Missouri fan like I am, and you're dreaming big, there's a treble at play here. 
Under 20 World Cup, under 21 Euro Nations League. Give me three trophies in a month. If I can dream, right? If I can dream. Uh, speaking of dreams, Mike Soroka, or though Michael, I guess he goes by Michael Soroka now, uh, who famously tore his ACL two times in a row. The second time he tore it literally walking into the Braves facility to rehab. Finally called up, you know, 600 plus days fighting to get back to the major leagues. And he pitched all right the first game, got hit pretty hard the second game. And then very surprisingly to me, they sent him down. He's optioned back to to AAA. And his stay in the big leagues was 10 minutes. Two starts. One was fine. One wasn't good. They lost the game. He didn't win. They had said that they had wait, They were so patient in bringing him up because they didn't want him to have to worry about being set down if he had a bad start. And sure enough, he has one bad start, and they send him right back down. Tough league, uh, cutthroat league. Even, even good dudes like Snit, very cutthroat. Braves are doing what they, I guess, doing what they think they need to do. I think if now... Freed was just placed on the 60-day day DL. We're not going to see him in June. It's probably be after the All-Star break at the earliest, if not August. You know, Kyle Wright's supposedly going to be longer than Freed. They're going to need Mike Soroka to do something at some point, I think, this year. And if not Soroka, I think they're going to have to add someone. Elder's been very good. He was good again tonight against the Mets. Gave up a couple two-run home runs. Uh, but fought through it. He's had a really good season. Strider is great, obviously. Spencer Strider is the ace right now, I guess. Um, but the ace, uh, the Braves still very injured. Um, great win against the Mets. We'll see how they do. Now, speaking of comebacks, this is the last thing. Speaking of comebacks, guess who's back? <laughs> Michael Thomas is back. And I tweeted today, I'm not falling for this again. Uh, but all the all the media in New Orleans are our guys from the last episode. Nick and uh, Mike are pumped about him. Say he looks great. Did a interview with the media today. He's all smiles. Him and David Carr, best buddies. So, all right, <laughs> Mike Thomas, he's back. Says he's going to be ready day one of training camp. I'll tell you what though, if he plays week one and comes up questionable week two. <laughs> And doesn't play, and they say, "Oh, he'll be, he'll be back any week. Don't need to use IR. Just a little injury." I'll tell you right then, he's never coming back. But we'll see. Do you believe in the Mike Thomas hype? I don't know. All right, let's take a break. We'll be right back with Joshua Robinson. Let's preview the Champions League final. It's Inter and the Mammoth Man City. Can Inter? Bring down Goliath. We'll find out what Joshua thinks on the other side of this promo. Thank you for checking out the Sportscasters podcast. Don't forget to check out my other show, the 24-inch podcast. Hollywood Dave Rollins, Paula Bennett. And myself, look back at the career of Hulk Hogan, the immortal one. We do it every other week. We cover matches from the 80s, the 90s, his entire career. 
We read the news from the era. It's a great nostalgic look back at the greatest wrestling career in the history of the business. Be sure to check it out right on this feed, brother. Hey, Josh, how you doing today? I'm good. How are you? Very good. Very good. Busy time in the world of Calcio, as it always is. Too much soccer. There's just always too many games and too many competitions, and I do feel for the guys sometimes, but as a fan, it's a very exciting time of year. I mean, every day it seems like there's something going on. Well, this is this is when uh, we get to the pointy end of the season. It all matters now. Yeah, I mean, everyone, you know, the Man City's trying to win a treble. You know, could we have in Bundesliga a new champion finally? You know, some of the leagues have wrapped up. Surprisingly, PSG hasn't even won their championship yet. I it's coming, though. Yeah, it's, it's coming. Com- it's coming. Uh, I know, but we got the under-20 World Cup is going on, which is an interesting competition because it falls outside of the an international window. So I think every country there is like, oh, I just wish we had this guy or that guy, right? I don't think anyone probably escapes that in an under-20 competition. And obviously, the European competitions are coming to a head as well. Let's start with Champions League because... It's it's obviously a team you thought and a team you didn't, right? And the team that you thought is the team, uh, the monsters, right? The the big bad boys from Manchester, and you know they're on the way to a treble. And um, you know, as a sort of a internet, uh, you know, a club neutral in the sense that I mostly just root for Italian teams, whoever they are. Call me foolish, but I think Inter's in a great spot. Um, they have no reason to be there. Nobody thinks they have any chance. Uh, it's one of those games where no one is going to pick them. Every single person asked to pick the game is going to pick Manchester City to win. Um, and the nice thing for them is it's not aggregate. It's not best of seven like in the United States. It's 90 minutes of knockout football. And, you know, if I was Manchester City, I wouldn't want them to hang around or start believing that they had a chance at it for very long. So from my standpoint, I think, yeah, what the hell? Go Play 90 minutes, give it all you got, see what happens. If you win, it's one of the great stories of all time. If you lose, no big deal. Everyone thought you are going to lose anyway. Thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I'm one of the people who's going to pick Manchester City also. Yeah, everyone. Um, yeah, everyone. They, they are a juggernaut. Yeah. And they look like they've rounded into form at exactly the right time. Sure. I was at that Real game last week. Oh, they crushed and them. It's, it's one of the best halves of football I have seen in the Champions League knockout rounds ever. That Man City performance was just so complete. And, you know, it's, it's kind of jarring to see Real Madrid, the team that has the Champions League in its DNA, wilt so badly. Um, so I, I think, you know, City, the project has been building towards this for 15 years. It's the most expensive, one of the most expensively assembled football so- squads in the game's history. Uh, they also probably have the best manager in the world right now. And, you know, he's, you can't forget that he's gone without a Champions League title for over a decade now. So he wants it, Guardiola wants it pretty badly too. And I think there's nothing to stop them at this point. You know, sure, it's nice for Inter. Um, and I think they need to enjoy it because I don't know when the next Champions League final is coming for them. They're, um, you can't forget that, you know, to put themselves in this position, they also walk a financial tightrope where the club's owners could lose control of the club in a year's time, if they don't repay this $275 million debt, um, you know, that, that comes due in a year. But I think so, that would just mean there'll be another, maybe potentially better owner on the other side. I mean, there's, you know, Inter is always well, going to be, you know. At, at first, you know, it may not be a better owner. It may first be a bank. 
which is exactly what happened to uh, to AC Milan across town. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's how they wound up in in the hands of uh, Elliot Management. Elliot happened to do a good job, um, but you know that that's what happens. You're, the creditors just take over the club if uh, if you fail to pay. So that's that's turmoil that Inter doesn't really need to think about right now. And they just won't. enjoy the Champions yeah, League and they final. Won't. I don't think they will. I don't think anyone on the in the starting eleven is thinking, man, we might be owned by a bank in two years. You know, no, no. But but the there is an atmosphere of light chaos at the club, and there that's been the that's been the situation for a couple of years now. You know, that's why they've had the fire sales in recent summers because they need to clear uh, that that salary mass, well, and they cer- need to get transfer fees in. Well, certainly the run that they've had at Champions League this year will help. Um, you know, all I hear about is how much money is in it, and I know that they were clearing over ten million dollars a game, and and you know, and it's an unprecedented run. Well, not unprecedented. Obviously, they've won in two thousand ten. They've won before as well. Uh, you know, you know what's really interesting? Yeah, that they looking at that semifinal. You know, in the time of season it came, um, the m- making the final is worth maybe another like eight ten million dollars to them. It was far more important for them. To qualify for the Champions League next year than it was for them to make the final right. this year, which it seems like they uh, will, especially yeah. with with Uve is is I think you know seems to be facing punishment. So I would be shocked if well, and, in the yeah, final four, and, yeah, and AC Milan's loss to the previous weekend I right. think just made it yep. just made it that much more likely. And yeah, I, I think, think I think Lazio, Lazio, uh, um, you know, obviously Napoli and I think Inter are safe. It's just to see who gets the last spot, and I think that'll largely depend on whatever happens with Uve. Yeah. But it's an interesting situation that that club is in, and just tells you a lot about the the tightrope these clubs have to walk. You know, when you're not owned by a state the way Man City is, when you don't have that kind of wealth. Well, one more thing about 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 uh, Inter, and then we'll go on because, you know, as someone who who you know, if if I'm if I'm watching league uh, club soccer, which I, I do almost every day, it's usually Syria, um, and um, you know, obviously internationally, I know a lot of the players as well, but. You know, I, I've noticed there's been a, a, a great talk about the amazing performance Manchester City had. And nothing I'm saying here is to diminish them. Of course, they should be 5-1 to one favorites, and of course, presumably, they should win. Um, but from the other side of the coin, I'm just trying to say that it was a pretty amazing first half for Inter in the first leg as well, which seems to not be talked about. And, and I think there was people watching the second game saying, oh, this is um, this is terrible. Like, But you have to remember... Inter was protecting a two. They didn't need to, you know. Manchester City was going into that game one to one. There was work to be done. You know, Inter's work was to protect and to, you know, play the kind of calcio that's defined Italian soccer for years and years. And they did it beautifully. And they added a goal, and they still got the win. And 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 I think there was a little bit of misconception when you look at. I think, and I think I've said this before on here. I think that to me, uh, England soccer kind of reminds me a lot of Canadian hockey, where I think there's a little bit of. Uh, you know, of, if they're Canadian, they're better. If it's Canada hockey, it's better. I, I think there's a little bit of that. And I think people are looking over guys like Bastoni, who's maybe a top 10 center back in the world. I think Barella is one of the best uh, and a pest, especially, you know, he's going to be a pest in that 90-minute game. Um, you know, the way that the Inzaghi has seemed to figure out the rotation, they play two strikers up front. Nobody else really in European soccer does that. Could that, you know, I'm sure Pep is more than qualified to figure it out. But in one game, seeing it once, it could trick them. I don't know. I just think they're dangerous, and maybe you disagree, but 
I think that I, I, I have the, the late, great Denny Green in my mind, the former uh, Minnesota Vikings and Arizona Cardinals coach who came out at a, a Monday Night Football game and said, if you want to crown him, you go ahead and crown him. And I feel like there's a lot of crowning going on before the game. So that's all I'll say about Listen, that. Listen, that's, that's, that's why we play the games, right? Yep, 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 yep. What about the other two uh, competitions, the finals? We have um, West Ham and Fiorentina in the uh, – Conference League and the and as much as much as we talked about how Real Madrid was the kings of uh, the Champions League, the kings of the uh, Europa, Sevilla uh, take down the old lady and they'll play uh, Roma and, and Jose Marino, who maybe we can talk about for a second, who's done an amazing job, won a cup last year, has a chance to win another one this year. Has Roma? This is maybe their best chance for European football or for Champions League European football next year, which was kind of sure. all, always the goal of this project. Um, so, what about that game? What, what do you think about about those two sides? Uh, and it should be an interesting final. I mean, you know, Mourinho was never the Mourinho Roma experiment was never going to be boring, and uh, you know, sure. we know, <laughs> yeah. But he's it's uh, it's all fun and games unless it unless he starts producing results and. You know, clearly he has produced results here, and uh, the the idea that that he could get back in the Champions League next season with Roma via the Europa League, which is you know one of the best things they did to that competition, was giving it a Champions League berth right. because it, it gave yeah. it some extra spice. Um, you know, that's it, it. Wouldn't surprise me because for all the all the noise that follows him around, um, you know, we forget that at one time he was. Possibly the best manager in the world, um, and yeah, you know, maybe right when of, Inter won that last uh, Champions League, maybe right around that time, right in 2010, with the famous hug yeah, with Matarazzi outside the San Siro, right at that moment. That, maybe. Yep. that was one of the that was one of the great tactical you know performances over two legs that I can think of in, in sort of modern soccer. Um, so, you know, we I don't think we should be surprised that uh, that he he has this in him that he has one more big run in him. And then conf- uh, the Conference League, I know it's a newer competition. Um, I know clubs have made fun of it. But I think for West Ham and for Fiorentina, it's a huge deal. It's a chance to end your season with a trophy. And and, yeah. lo- and look at the effect it had on Roma this year. You know what I mean? I think that was a, a huge deal for them and for their project. And maybe it can be the same for West Ham or, or for um, Fiorentina from Italy as well. Any thoughts on that one? Yeah. And, and I think it says a lot about the depth of the Premier League that you know West Ham is in this final but was nearly relegated from the Premier League this season too. They spent most of the season in a dogfight at the bottom of the table, um, and yet here they are, you know, better than uh, you know basically every equivalent team you know they've come across All right, from maybe, uh, from other leagues. Do you have any predictions? You have a prediction for the three games. Who do you got? Obviously, Man City, no doubt. What about the other uh, two? Yeah, Man City. I think West Ham in the Conference League and. You know, I just talked up Mourinho, but it's very tough to pick against uh, Sevilla in the Europa They are League. beasts, right? 6-0 and oh in the finals, I think, of that competition. Yeah. Yeah. They've never lost the final. I don't know if it's five or six, but I know they've never lost the final. So it's crazy. Um, but I think Mourinho has maybe never lost the final as well. So something's got to give there. Um, <laughs> we'll see. Uh, you talked about the depth of the, the, um, of the Premier League and, of course, the best league in the world. Fair. No problem. But before I let you go, I got to get a minute on the rise of Calcio because at every stage of knockouts, no country has been more represented than Italy has this year. And, yep. um, you know, a lot of the reason why less Italian teams have gone forward is because other Italian teams have knocked them out. Now, I will be perfectly honest and say I danced a jig when that draw came out. 
and I seen how it was placed, and I knew it would be very, very good for Champions League. But it's not just Champions League. At every competition, it seems like. I mean, there's an Italian team at every final. You know, three Italian teams, two English, one um, from Spain, you know, no other countries. And if we went back around, we'd see five Italian teams, you know, and 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 more than anyone in background. It's really been an unbelievable year. Um, yeah. You know, I, I, real quickly, I'll finish off. Uh, Italy yesterday at under-20 level with their three best under-20 players not there. And now I understand at that competition, that's every team. Uh, but at the under-20 level, absolutely just shocked the hell out of Brazil, who fit in fairness to get a couple late uh, goals to make it closer than it should have been. But uh, guys like Cassidy and um, Profundi, who's 17, by the way, at that competition, have surely made uh, some noise. And I know politicians like Mancini, uh, who who makes me laugh, like to run around and talk about, about how, how, how much gloom there is for Italy. Um, to me, I, I feel the dawn of a new era, and uh, I'm so excited. What is it like for an outsider without the biases and uh, that I have? Well, what do you see from from Calcio and Italian soccer, not just the club, but the national? I'm, I'm not. Level? I'm not ready to to say that Italian soccer is back the way it was in the '90s yet. I don't. I think you know we have to remember this was a World Cup year, and with the World Cup in the middle of the tournament, in the middle of the season, and weird stuff always happens in World Cup years. Um, we also know that the financial stability of these clubs is, is very limited, um, to put it, to put it mildly. Um, and, you know, they, they can't compete in the transfer market with mainly Premier League teams, but some of the top Spanish teams and, and at least one French team. Um, so I, I think we'll need to see this over more than one season to believe that Italian soccer is back. You know, let's, let's not forget that. You know the national team continues to under you know underperform well, pretty they just, badly. They just won the Euros, <clears throat> and I know they didn't make the yeah, World Cup. And then they didn't qualify. They did the not World qualify Cup. the World Cup. I mean, of course, if Jorginho makes a penalty, he's got two chances. Make one, they they do qualify, and and the system of yeah. qualification is very wonky. And by uh, by the same, but by the same token, they miss a penalty in the Euro final. Yeah, Jorginho and, did miss it, you know, but they don't the, win the Euros, so. But but part of penalties is saving them as well, and Donnarumma, you know, save save three in a row. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm just I'm just not very bullish on the future of Italian soccer. I'm sorry to say. Well, good, good. I, I think we can do this next year and the year after and the year after, and one of us will be right and one of us will be wrong. There's nothing wrong <laughs> with that. I didn't come on here for you to pat me on the back. I came on to uh, to discuss it. And I appreciate <laughs> your opinion. Um, last thing, and we'll get you out of here on this. So obviously, uh, what do you Bundesliga? Do you have an opinion there? Uh, does it seem like we'll finally get a new champion? Any loose signs we haven't talked about? Any predictions you want to throw out? Um, anything we didn't miss in terms of the end of the year here? No, I think, uh, listen, I'm always pro having new champions. That's yeah, um, fun, right? It's fun. I, I, I think it's more than fun. I think it's essential for the health of the league. Yeah. Um, and so that's that's what worries me about the Premier League, too, that we now have City. Right. You know, the, the Arsenal collapse there at the end. Was the difference between having three champions, yeah. three different champions in the space of four years, and having the same champion five times in the space of six? Right. You know that that really does kind of change your perspective on things, and it's uh, it's not it's not an ideal moment for the Premier League, especially since you know the league is being dominated by the club that the the league itself thinks has been cheating for a decade with right. the financial violations. Yep. So they're gonna they've painted themselves into a corner here in the Premier League. You know, and the interesting thing about new champions, I'll say this, I think the best thing for the Italian teams has been the 
the the nine year run of Juve ending and now having four different champions, you know, in, in four years. I, I think that's part of what has sparked the league. You know what I mean? Instead of everyone just sitting back and watching Juve win another championship, you know, I think the the battle to 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 maybe to unseat them has created a, a more wide open league and, and more excitement and. And maybe that's brought more eyes to more teams, whatever. But I feel like that's been important. Like we said, like yeah. we said before, no one watches sports for it to be inevitable. No, 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 we don't. But we'll see if the inevitable happens in Instable in a couple of weeks. And uh, and uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I mean, I'm sure it probably will. Uh, but it'll be fun to see what um, what Engazi and Inter can come up with for 90 minutes and see if they can tame the beast. An unbelievable team. Will they win the treble? Uh, I think so. You think so? All right. Thank you for the time. Right, I much. appreciate it. Messi versus Ronaldo's the book. If you still want to get it, we, we saw him on Ted Lasso. The other book was on, which was an amazing moment. Uh, the League, I think that one's called. The, uh, the Beard, Club. The the Club. Club. Uh, Beard was reading it. Any other plugs you want to mention or Twitter or anything like that? Uh, no, but the Messi-Ronaldo will be out again late summer in paperback. Oh, with beautiful. a new and updated epilogue You know that took me to Saudi Arabia. Nice. So there's, there'll be new material in there and... Uh, Still time to, to get it if you haven't read it. And where does Massey play next year? I think he may be hitting the Saudi too. <laughs> okay. Too much money to turn down, right? All right. Thank you. I appreciate you. Take care. Use a few pounds, tight pants, points, hollering out. She was a black hat beauty with big dark eyes and points all her own, sudden way up high, way up firm and high. I pass the cornfields when the woods got heavy. I want to thank Joshua Robinson for being on the podcast. Boy, he does not have the romantic views of Italian soccer as I do. That's all right. Thanks to Joshua for being on. Enjoyed that. Enjoyed the chance to stand up for Calcio and for Italy, both club and country. All right, quickly, uh, in a second, I'm going to bring you to an interview I did with a guy named Michael Thompson, uh, T-H-O-M-S-E-N, Thompson. Uh, His book is called Cage Kings. Um. How an unlikely group of moguls, champions, and hustlers transformed the USC, UFC into a six, ten million dollar industry. Cage Kings. Struggling through that read there. But uh, Michael's going to be out in a second. We'll talk about that. This book comes out on June 20th. And the publisher is not thrilled that this interview is coming out now. But they didn't ask me ahead of time to hold it. I'm probably going to have to rerun it in a couple weeks. Um, so maybe in a couple of weeks I'll do a big interview with someone, and then I'll air this after it. Instead of doing two new, um, two new new books, I will do interviews. I'll do one. Um, real quickly though, this was the last book sort of from the spring, uh, but it's time to start getting the um, the summer books in. And the first one is one I really want to mention because it's by a friend, a really great guy, and a really great writer named Adam Lazarus. Uh, who has been on here to talk about his book, Best of Rivals. He was also on to talk about his book, Held the Redskins. Those are both in the book club. And then we also did an interview with Adam for Super Bowl Monday, uh, where we did a Super Bowl 25 podcast. But his new book is called The Wingmen, 
the unlikely, unusual, unbreakable friendship between John Glenn and Ted Williams. And that's out August 22nd, 2023. I'm going to have Adam in soon, and then we'll have him in in August as well to talk about this. I know it's a big book for him. He, he went down to the Baseball Hall of Fame at the end of May and did a talk on it. I know he worked really hard on it. Um, and I want to do everything I can do to help him uh, make sure that it's good, uh, that it does well. So if you would like to pre-order, you can do so now on Amazon and Apple and all those places. The Wingman, the unlikely, unlikely, unusual, unbreakable friendship between John Glenn and Ted Williams. You know, one of these times I should maybe record this, you know, not at one thirty at night. Um, so I don't speak like an absolute mush mouth loser. My God. I am brutal. Struggling, struggling. The other book I wanted to announce. Um, this book comes out on July 11th. It's called The Tao of the Backup Catcher, Playing Baseball for the Love of the Game by Tim Brown and Eric Kratz. I do not believe that is Heisman Trophy winning Notre Dame wide receiver Tim Brown. I think it's a different Tim Brown. Um, But it would be cool if it is that Tim Brown. We'd finally have a Heisman winner on the show. Um, But wow, we got a blurb from our friend Jeff Passon. He says, this isn't just a story about baseball. It's about life. And the beauty of knowing and accepting who you are. Um, so we'll have them in. And I'm going to be getting a copy of this book. Uh, so that's where we're at now. we got the backup catcher. And we got Adam's book coming in. And right now we're going to take a break. And we're going to close off the UFC book. I also reached out to the author of a book called 62. Which is about Aaron Judge. I'd love to do that one. So hopefully he gets back to me. He hasn't yet. Uh, but I'll stay on that. And then there's a couple other ones coming out this summer that I want to do. And that's before the big rush in the fall where there's just a ton of books coming out to be available for Christmas. And uh, we'll do a bunch then. But right now we're going to take a break and we'll come right back with Michael Thompson. Our next guest tonight lives in New York City, uh, but he is a graduate of UCLA. He's also the author of a great new book about the UFC's growth into a $10 billion industry. He's making his debut on the podcast today. A warm sportscasters welcome to Michael Thompson. Hey, Michael, how are you doing today? I'm great. How are you? Thanks Very good. Me. Cage Kings, how an unlikely group of moguls, champions, and hustlers transformed UFC into a $10 billion industry is the book we've been talking about in the book club. One thing I want to say before I started is, you know, like any good podcaster in the lead up to this, I was, you know, Googling and researching and mm. what can I find out about Michael? You know, who is this guy? I don't know him really. Yeah. And one thing that jumped out, it was kind of interesting. I wanted to ask you more about is you once had a job trans, mm. let me get this right, transcribing mm-hmm. like spy calls for a government agency or something oh yeah okay it, it sounds it sounds more you tell me without us both being killed yeah um well it was it was really i did peace corps so i i'm like not quite fluent in malagasy the language um, i speak in madagascar um but one of my old peace corps friends 
worked for a government contractor. They like I didn't know at the time it was like an FBI contractor, but he told me later on, a couple of years after we had done this job, but that he just had a translation job. I didn't even know what it was. And he said they need someone to translate some tapes from Malagasy into English. And he he had done a few um, of the tapes himself, and then he, it got to be too much work, so he had me come and do it. And so I just said, yeah, I didn't know that much about it. But once I started doing it, I realized they were sending me phone calls, basically, of, of this woman talking. And kind of eventually I pieced together um, that it was probably a government employee who was having conversations not in English around the workplace around a government office and you know probably someone was just like suspicious about what she was actually talking about so they interesting had some, yeah and it wasn't it wasn't like the FBI called us up or anything it was like a several layers of government contracting but I think um but she was just talking to a witch doctor in Madagascar about how to how to keep her husband interested and if her husband was having, <laughs> it wasn't like, you know, we're going to drop the bomb. Here's where we're doing it. Meet me at the, you know, so instead so it, it was like really Monday, this really racy thing about she should wear lingerie or something like that. No, nah, it was <laughs> less, it was like put quarters under his pillow and then that um, gets me every something. time. That That's the same thing. My wife does. I, if I get a quarter, I'm good for like a year. Yeah, his quarters, and, <laughs> and then if he finds it, it'll be a sign that he's suspicious or something. There's something involving bananas and banana peels. I think if he eats a lot of bananas or, or something, his like libido is high or he's lying. Or, you know, it's, <laughs> it's something. It was, that's it's wild. been a while now. That's it's wild. Like 2009, 2010. Well, that's not to that. say that people are reading a book from a guy who spent the last 20 years just writing. I mean, you've also been a writer for years freelancing yeah, writing for the new yorker sure. different places things like that and i tried yeah, even yeah 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 i mean i started working in the movie industry way back when when um i graduated from college in the late 90s i originally worked in the movies for about four or five years and then um a long journey to the ufc yeah why was Although, why was now the time in your life to do this book um I mean, I think it's one of the first big milestones where you can kind of tell a story about what the UFC is historically and not just kind of as a current trend. But, you know, it crosses a couple of generations now and you can start to see some of the the larger patterns and trends in terms of what was happening behind the scenes, not just at the company, but with within like the media industry at, at, as a whole what was happening in cable, what was happening in, you know, venture capital and banking, why, you know, money was flowing around to sort of support certain kinds of mass entertainment, mass media projects at different times. Um, and kind of how this slotted into that as a, as a historical um, phenomenon and not just a pop culture kind of, trend well i kind of had that written down because this happens a lot i get a sports book and i end up reading a business book you know and it felt that way for a big portion of it it felt like it you know and then there's nothing wrong with that i'm not saying that negatively you know um you know james andrew miller's long uh book about espn that's a business Mm -hmm. book you know what i mean the espn is the business but it's a business book and it's effective and i thought the same thing for cage kings you know i thought 
you know, if you asked me what section of the bookstore I would put this in, it'd be a few different ones, but business would certainly be one of the sections it could fit. Yeah, that was the idea, actually. Cause, I mean, there there have been a few UFC books about the sport more so. Like Jonathan Snowden did um, a really good job with Total MMA, which is one of the early books that kind of tell the history of the culture more than the sort of business side of things and like who the fighters were and, you know, why, you know, the big fight, like why Kazushi Sakuraba was such a big deal or why Mark Coleman was such a big deal at the time or, you know, why Big Nog was such a, was such a huge celebrity for the period that he was, um, you know, big in pride. Um, and Clyde Gentry did a really good job sort of capturing the early history of not just the UFC, but a lot of the regional promotions in the nineties that tried to follow off uh, the UFC success. But, you know, those were, you know, the story of uh, the sport and the culture, I think had been well captured, but I, I think there was still kind of a gap in terms of appreciating how this fit in, in terms of like money, why the money specifically was interested in this culture now you're an OG fan, like a pre Dana White fan of the sport too, right? Yeah, I was. Yeah. I was 16 when the first one came out. I remember still. I remember exactly what the the color of sunlight in the room was when I saw the first footage of UFC in '93. It was a local television news um, piece about it. I still, I you know, there was just something about it that just stuck in my brain it was sort of like shocking transfixing i remember the first time i ever knew of ufc it was maybe yeah. a year or so after that and we went to my yeah. we went to my dad's friend's house and he mm. had this he had like the before you called it a man cave man cave right he had this really nice <laughs> finished basement and with a big screen tv down there and like we watched super bowls that was a really cool spot to watch sports and we were yeah. there but like we were there like not for a sporting event like for like a like a cookout, like maybe on like a Memorial Day mm-hmm. or something like that. And he's like, you guys got to come check this out. We went down there. And he's like, there's this new fighting sport. And mm. he's like, there's no rules except, and he said like the couple things there were. Like you can't yeah. gouge the eye. You know, right. you can't stomp his balls. Whatever like the few things yeah. were. He's like, you got to see this. And he's yeah. like, oh, and it's coming here. I think they ran in Buffalo at the odd before the odd closed. And the odd closed yeah. at 96. So, you know, it was somewhere around when they were coming here, I think. Now, I know that there okay. was a long period where they couldn't run New York. But, it, I, yeah, yeah, I was, think this was before that happened. Maybe, maybe yeah, not was, about that part. But I remember maybe, that was the first time I'd seen it and what it was. Yeah. And it was shocking to me, you know, because they were just beating the hell out of each other. Yeah, that would have been, I think, um, 95, the Buffalo show. Yeah. Yeah, they were briefly legal in New York. They, you know, they they kind of rode in, in this sort of middle zone where um, it was such a new sport. There weren't a lot of laws or regulations that seemed to apply directly to it. So they kind of seized on that fact that they weren't under the jurisdiction of any specific body in the law, um, because a lot of the athletic commissions, the language of of their regulations and things, didn't specifically address like martial arts contests per se. Um, so they kind of just went to states where there was no regulation and said, well, and that's a lot of the early court victories they had. It wasn't that, you know, this is, this is legal. It's that there's no legal statute saying you have the power to prohibit this. 
So then they went and all the states started writing laws specifically to target cage fighting and mixed martial arts. So now so. here, here's another really cool – sorry if I cut you off. Here's another really cool pre-UFC being the UFC memory I have. I'm a big yeah. Howard Stern guy. And, yeah. and uh, I, I don't – I still listen every day, but I stopped listening uh-huh. in 2013. So I listen to shows from 1984 to 2013. And I listen to something every okay. day. Uh, but anyway, so back in the day, Baba Booey was hired mm-hmm. by a company to run a show, to, to, to host a show in Montreal. But the show was mm-hmm. on an Indian reservation. And they couldn't tell the people at the border why they were coming there. Yeah. And while they were in route, it kind of got sniffed out, I guess. Mm-hmm. And Baba Booey still sort of went along with the fib. And they did just send him back, but they kept some people. Yeah. And I remember Monday on the show, him telling the story to Howard. And Howard just ripping into him about how stupid he was for trying to cra- like cross an international border and lying to the people. And how much could they have paid you for this appearance? You're such an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. I would love to find that clip and send it to you because it's so funny. Because then the guy who's promoting calls in and talks about yeah. like everything they're trying to do and 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 how and this was the reality for for martial arts for a period back in the what late nineties. Yeah, absolutely. That was that must have been the extreme challenge show, right? In that Montreal. sounds right. It was in Montreal. Yep. Yeah, it was a yeah, it was a big debacle itself. It got <laughs> shut down. Yep. <laughs> a lot of the fighters were threatened with with getting arrested. Yeah, they they detained. I yeah. know they detained the one guy for 3 or 4 days. You know, they eventually yeah. just let him go and sent him back where he came from or whatever, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> Absolutely wild. So, you were a big Gracie guy, right? Um yeah, he was he was, you know, I think like a lot of people, Hoist Gracie was the first real celebrity that shot out even more than Ken Shamrock, because Hoist was, you know, he was a normal-looking guy, you know. And that was sort of back in the days of, you know, these big, bulky, muscular kind of He-Man types. And, you know, this 175-pound, like, you know, skinny dude that didn't look like anything just could beat anybody. It seemed, like, supernatural. You know, it seemed like a... And his, his matches often played out the way the WWF would book matches for mm. one of their uh one of their one of their faces because he would always seem to be taking an ass kicking yeah. a- and then the heel would slip on the banana peel and all of a sudden he's tapping them out you know what i mean it was yeah. like a really i think you kind of make the point in the book somewhere about that too about how he always seemed like he was and and i bring up i wanted to bring up wwe because vince mcmahon always talked about mm. the one reason he wasn't as afraid of the ufc as people said he should be was because they would never be able to build stars because the, the guys would get knocked out they couldn't control yeah. them you know and and, and yeah. there's maybe I, I was curious to see what you thought about that because if you look back there is some truth to guys and gals peak they come they're huge stars mm-hmm. then they go you know i can think of so many guys who were like the big thing that then weren't like tito ortiz or Ken shamrock like sure. you said or gracie early or you know mcgregor had his day you know um mm-hmm. i don't know so what did you think of that comment by mcmahon and, and how, i don't know if it played out i don't know that they've ever actually been 
the competitors the media wanted them to be. I think it turned out there was space for both of them um, to be successful. They've both been successful, both been sold for huge amounts of money to the same company. So whatever that says for it, right? But I was curious to get your take on that. Yeah, you know, I think there's sort of, you know, there's sibling sports in a lot of ways. Like deep in the roots of mixed martial arts, you know, they come out of the same sort of catch wrestling background in, you know, the 1950s, 1960s. You know, they sort of, all of this stuff that bubbled to the surface eventually in the 90s comes out of, you know, um, these traveling grapplers and, you know, before the pro wrestling of today, it's super theatrical. Like when it was a little bit grittier and a lot of the matches weren't scripted, they were actually just real submission matches. Um, you know, that's, that, that's kind of where they overlap. I think, um, you know, the star point is an interesting question because I think the UFC's entire model today is built on the fact that they don't have to build stars, right? They right. Don't, the UFC they don't is the star, invest. right? Yeah. Yeah, and there's there's pressure on the fighter to build themselves up as a star. That's what was so powerful about Ronda Rousey. UFC didn't really have to build her. She she came in with a head of steam from Strike Force, and you know there were, there was the Showtime documentary about her. Like people had already discovered her, and she came off the heels of Gina Carano, who had been one of the first um, big like women's fighting celebrities in the mid 2000s when she fought for elite xc and then that became strike force and then she passed that kind of porch on to to uh, chris cyborg and then chris cyborg sort of got stripped of the title and she, she tested positive for banned substances and then ronda filled in um so there's a direct kind of lineage here of of stars building themselves they're almost sort of like you know a proto gig worker in a way and the UFC kind of just, they pick and choose who has the most kind of heat, the highest Q rating coming in, and then they can just kind of give them a platform. And then that produces this exponential interest. You see these sort of like super phenomenons, like Conor McGregor was already a star in Ireland in regional promotions by the time uh, he had his UFC debut. Um it's just, you know, in the U.S., if you're not following, you know, promotions outside the UFC, you might not be as aware about, you know, who has heat coming in. Um, but the WWE, they don't have that ability. They Like, everyone who's a star in the WWE has to get built. They have to write the storylines for them. They have to create the character. They have to create the persona. Um and so right it's not like the 80s and the territory days when guys would build those personas in the south or in one of the other regional yeah. territories and then they would come in pre-made where they try on different personas you right know? they'd have like five or six before they'd find the one that like sure. finally actually fit um but there is a little bit of an overlap i mean like lorenzo fertita famously said the first thing he did when he bought the w or when he bought the ufc was the you know, get his hand on all of the WWF at that time, WWF's contracts, all of their, you know, business documents that, that he could, that had been like put up in the public domain. And there's a lot of similarities between the way that UFC fighter contracts are structured with the way WWF fighter contracts are structured. At Independent the contractor kind of a thing. And yeah. And like the, the, in the WWF at the time, it was kind of similar where if you were wrestling on the regional circuit or 
you know, you would want to come up with a persona or a character and bring some props and a costume. But if you signed with the WWF, the contract said that they owned that character then if you fought for them and they right. owned yep. all of the props and they, even though you came up with it. Yep. Wasn't very few exceptions. The, yep. Very few yeah. exceptions to that. Yep. And that's why so, they change everyone's you know, name too. So it makes it easier for them to sure. own it. Yep. And, you know, they, they obligated you to do all this extra promotional work. They could use your likeness in magazines and anything they wanted without compensating you. Um, the UFC does a lot of the same things. Um, so, and, you know, one of the quirks, you know, one of the ways Vince McMahon got around the question of athletic regulation was, you know, he decided to start calling WWF sports entertainment rather than sports. So that kind of helped him skirt having to deal with state athletic commissions. Yep. And if you look at some of the early UFC shows after Dana White and the Fertitas brought them, some of the first ones, I think, you know, the first two or three, they have this logo that says Zufa Entertainment. Not just it's not Zufa LLC, and I think that they were kind of trying to to play the same game a little bit. That they were trying to frame themselves as entertainment and not just a pure sport, because there was still this open question of how many states would regulate them in. And so, you know, I think they're borrowing a lot of different um, tactics that the WWF at that time had had kind of put in play to, to build themselves up. Super interesting. I want to get back to Dana White in a second, but I want to, I want to ask you another thing about the star thing because, yeah, um, it's interesting how the WWE now and you know also yeah. UFC have sort of both discovered that what's best for them in terms of business is to make their their um their intellectual properties a star. Like now, yeah. when I was a kid, WrestleMania three sold ninety thousand tickets. Because everyone knew Hogan and Andre were wrestling on the card, right? Now, WrestleMania sells 90,000 tickets before anyone knows who's on the card at all. Because WrestleMania yeah. has become the um, the draw. Not necessarily the right. matches at WrestleMania, right? And it seems like mm -hmm. UFC has maybe done this as well. And I think to Rousey a little bit, and I, and I don't know if she was a turning point for them or not. But she was so hot. And, and I, I will not question... Dana White's promotion ability. I always thought it was a little odd um, where her, some of her fights were. I remember waiting around until like one o'clock in the morning to watch one of her fights. And I'm just thinking like, so yeah. weird. Um, but, yeah. but that's a different story for a different day. But she was so hot and then she got hit in the face or whatever. She yeah. lost those two fights in a row and it was over so fast. And I always felt like we would hear from her what we heard from Tyson after Buster Douglas or something that she was running so fast at the time that mm. she couldn't keep up being the fighter that she was and being the star at the same time. Like Mike Tyson yeah. fully admitted he went to Tokyo, even though he won that fight in the eighth round, which nobody talks about one of the mm. great ripoffs yeah. in the history of sports. I mean, he won yeah. that fight in the eighth round, um, but nonetheless, he lost it officially and he said after, I didn't train, I wasn't ready, I wasn't the fighter I was because I was going so fast in every other direction. Um, and I don't know if that happened yeah. with Rousey or not, but it seems like since then, like the star focus has maybe went the way that the WWF thought. And I don't know if I'm onto something here or if I'm projecting or what you thought about that question that maybe didn't have a question mark at the end. I apologize. I'm trying. Yeah, no, I mean, I think... 
you are onto something. Like, if you compare sort of the the first wave of the popularity of the UFC in the post Ultimate Fighter days when it was Tito Ortiz and and Chuck Liddell and then Brock Lesnar came along. Um, this is an interesting comparison to Ronda Rousey because you know Tito Ortiz was kind of that same figure in 2000, 2001, 2002. I he remember. Was unbeatable. Yep. He was a phenomenal. Like he was so physical and muscular and strong, and the wrestling slams, you know, the the Evan Tanner knockout where you just he just slammed him and he knocked him completely unconscious for you know a minute and a half. He's just lying on the mat. It wasn't a punch. It was just a wrestling slam. <laughs> he's you know, a freak. Those days. Yeah, he's a freak. And then he couldn't win after you know, yeah. like Liddell kind of punctured the myth. But if you look at his earning potential as a star, he made all of his money after the myth had been punctured. I think you see the same thing with Conor McGregor right now, where sort of after that Nate Diaz loss. That's when all his real big paydays came. The Khabib fight, you know, the Cerrone fight was a win, but that was a huge pay-per-view seller. The um, the Nate Diaz rematch, the Floyd fight was a As loss. Say, the still, yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he just the two Dustin Poirier rematches. You know, he's just all, he's cashing in, and it's kind of the same thing that Mike Tyson did. He was this, you know, you know, this like unbelievable sort of force of nature, and he lost. But all his biggest pay-per-view performances came after the loss. Right, after jail, right? really. Because, yeah. Because people sympathize with him, and they're still, you know, they. That's, that's the trick of fighting, is you actually start caring about the fighters as people, and even after they're sort of out of their prime, or after the sort of magic streak kind of comes to an end, you still, you know, there's something emotional about wanting to root for them, even after they're just you know their own kind of personal incentive the hunger to like why am i doing this again just yeah you know and with tyson i think his skills declined a little bit and he wasn't he he lost obviously the aura just the intimidation once he had lost and went to jail but when he had those fights with holyfield and lewis those are some of his biggest paydays because i think we all thought we all knew that maybe he wasn't the guy he was but we also Mm -hmm. knew he could knock any of those guys out with one punch if he got it you know, and yeah. may, whether that was true or not, that's what everyone thought, and everyone watched to see if that would happen or not. You know, yeah. and then and then people watched. Is he going to bite someone again? Is he going to threaten to eat their children? He became a whole other sideshow as well, too. I mean, Tyson's yeah. another fascinating I, guy. That's it. Ronda Rousey's two biggest pay per view performances were her two losses. You know, it's the Holly Holm fight and the <laughs> wow. Amanda Nunes fight. Those both did you know over a million pay per view buys. You know, you remember they used to put her, they used to couple her as a co-main event with like the male champions, like the Chris Weidman fight. You know, she was always with Chris Weidman or someone else. And it, it, it took a while before they trusted her enough to just have her be the full main event and carry an entire pay-per-view. But I, you know, I believe she could have kept fighting if she wanted to. And, you know, whether or not she would have been competitive, you know, I can't say I'm not a fighter myself and don't have a super tactical understanding of it, but certainly as a, as a star and as a marketable kind of centerpiece, she could have, and she probably would have continued making even more money than she had on the come up when she, you know, kind of took the world by storm. But I, you know, I think you're right. The, the sort of pressure and the weight of having to, you know, build this persona yourself and then maintain it 
even after the sort of, you know, the need for it, the, the need you have when you're like trying to make a name for yourself, you're trying to find some financial stability for yourself, you have that hunger, you know, and then you get all the money, you get all the recognition, you get all the accolades. And it's sort of like, you know, why am I just locking myself in a cage again over and over and over? And some people just love it. Like Tito Ortiz, you know, he was a real fighter, whatever else you could say about him. He loved the competition. He loved, you know, that moment of being in the cage. I think Conor McGregor is the same way. You know, he he doesn't have to do it. He does it because, you know, he is obsessed with it. And, you know, there's a lot more to it than that at this point. But The sportscasts yeah. are here with the author of a great new book, Cage Kings, How an Unlikely Group of Moguls, Champions, and Hustlers Transformed the UFC into a $10 billion industry. It's Thompson, right? I hope I have that right. Thompson. Yeah, okay. Yes. Michael Thompson. I was going to ask you before, and I forgot. Uh, the book is awesome. A few more things, and then I'll let you go. Um, I wanted to talk to you about Dana White for a minute because mm-hmm. he's become the biggest star in UFC. He's the biggest star in UFC, right? I mean, he, he's yeah. he's the he's the he's obviously the face of it, but he's also the – I don't know. I feel like he drives the needle in a way. I feel like people who love him think mm-hmm. he's the greatest, and people who hate him – He's a great heel too, you know. He's the best yeah. of both worlds. He's very similar to Vince McMahon. I, I won't keep going that route, but they're two super similar guys in terms of how they're perceived by their public. But um, when you think about Dana White and mm. where do you what, what direction do you go? Like, where do you sit on the guy? Where, where do you feel? I mean, he's had really public feuds with journalists that cover UFC. He's outspoken mm-hmm. he was he went the other way in the pandemic what, whatever you feel about the pandemic when everyone was going one way he went the other way right like he's very i think polarizing for lack of a better word might even be the best word but where does he stand for you what, what are your thoughts on on dana white um well you know it's a complicated question but i i i, I think the simplest way of putting it is I think in his heart of hearts, he's a good, enthusiastic, optimistic person. And I think he, he thrives on other people being successful. I think he really is a kind of like a self-help Tony Robbins style, like, you know, success breeds success kind of person. But he, he has a side of him also. That's like, if, if you're getting in the way of his success, the company's success, then it's full. There's, there's no like moral boundaries. He's ruthless. Warfare. He's Everything ruthless. is on. And he goes back and forth. Right. And yeah. that, I think that's ultimately a pretty unstable and abusive dynamic. I think, like that's, that's a trait of, to me, like an abusive personality where you, you give yourself all the options. You can be the loving, cuddly, supportive, cheery guy, or you can be the scary, threatening, intimidating guy. And I think in a business setting that it's obviously got a lot of benefits for like fighter negotiations, you know, and a lot of fighters talk about how, you know, early on he builds them up, he brings them in, he shows them behind the scenes, he takes them on fancy rides in his nice cars and, you know, makes them feel like they're in the VIP of the VIP. And then, you know, a couple of years down the line, they can't even get a text response from him. They're just, just, you know, they're all the way on the outside again. Or else, you know, if they start sticking up for themselves and he becomes, you know, 
a, a full-blown antagonist and starts criticizing him publicly like we've seen recently with Francis Ngannou where he's like he's afraid to fight he doesn't want the hard fights or whatever um or according to Francis you know Dana was saying that his that Francis's um representation aren't necessarily looking out for what's best for Francis and that's mm-hmm. a pattern that you've seen from a lot of other fighters in the past Randy Couture wrote in his memoir about Dana um, criticizing Randy's agents and managers at the time when he was trying to negotiate new contracts with the UFC Ronda Rousey wrote about some uh, pretty contentious exchanges with Dana over her manager at the time trying to get a uh, a better pay for her when she coached the ultimate fighter. Um, Brandon Vera had a very famous um, court case that wound up in the courts where his manager was trying to get him a better deal. And Dana sort of went, um, you know, full blown antagonist with him and Brandon wound up uh, severing ties with his manager and signing with someone else. So he could He's preserve had the, this relationship the long feud with, with UFC. Halwini, right? Is that how you say his name? No, Hawaii. Yeah. No, that's that's something else entirely. Like, um, yeah. I mean, there's 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 a lot of. Um, well, well, hold on one second, because I'm a sports sure. media nerd. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. that's I used to buy the USA Today every Monday and turn to mm-hmm. the sports media. You know, the, instead of reading about the game, I wrote. I would want to read the the guy writing about who's talking about. So I'm a sports media nerd a little bit, and that's yeah, really sure. what this show is. And the yeah. the Halloweeny thing is interesting to me because. Like he went as far as pulling his credential at one point, um, yeah. then it was given back. I think maybe under pressure, they fought back and forth. Um, I think he the the I'm, I keep saying his name wrong. It's his first name is Ariel, right? Ariel is Helwani. Okay, I'm just gonna say Hel-Wani. Ariel because I can get that yeah. part right. Uh, Ariel, I think, is sort of either overtly or or, or sort of subliminally accused him maybe of anti-Semitism. Sent, yeah. Uh, it's my first day. I'm sorry. I haven't been doing this 12 years. <laughs> uh, okay, they've gone at each other hard is the point. Um, but I'll say this about Ariel, and you can tell me. He's had a lot yeah. of feuds with a lot of different people. Like, there's a lot of people in the sports media, and I can't mm. think of a lot of names, maybe Skip Bayless, maybe a couple others, that have had so many contentious disagreements with other people than him. And my mom said to me when I was a kid, if one kid at the playground has a problem with you, it's probably them. If everyone in the playground has a problem with you, you might want to think about why that might be. And I wonder if that exists with Ariel a little bit. He's got passionate fans, so I don't want him coming at me. Um, But I'm curious what your insight is, if you have any opinion or thought at all, just because we got there and I'm nerdy about this stuff. Um. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think that getting in fights with promoters is, is inevitable if you're covering the sport, you know, because at a certain point, you know, you, you have to just, if, if you're being honest and fair to the sport and not a specific company within the sport, you know, you have to just start covering things that are negative or that, you know, show a company in an unflattering light or whatever. Um, 
he's also famous. Like, there's very few figures in the MMA reporting world that have gotten the notoriety that Ariel's gotten. Right. And he's built that up yep. himself. And and know, through this stuff, too, is part of it. Why he's so famous, right? I mean. Yeah, he's the only one you could point, like, the next most famous person. There, is, there isn't a next most famous MMA journalist. If you're a hardcore fan, you can know. You know, know who they are. Jonathan Snowden. Right. Luke Thomas. Josh Gross. is. John Nash, there's a Good whole point. bunch of other people that, yep. that do important work, but like there's kind of a gulf in terms of just public notoriety. And, you know, in part, he was a hustler, you know, he hustled his way through a whole bunch of different generations of websites, of broadcast media, and now ESPN, then he left ESPN, he's back on, you know. He's, he's like just, at five places now, right? He like, he's with Ringer, he's here, he's there. Yeah, he's definitely a heart. Sure. I would never take away his work ethic, that's for sure. Yeah, so... You know, like, but, you know, at the same time, I think you look at him, he's, to me, an enthusiast reporter. Like, he's not doing work like John Nash, where he's going through financial documents and really pulling out the black and white hard truth about how the UFC machine operates. Or, you know, he's not doing, you know, deep, you know, like uh, Steve Morocco is one of the great kind of unheralded longtime MMA journalists who just, and he wrote a great story about Spencer Fisher and his struggles with uh, CTE um, and brain trauma after his career. Right. That's not his brand, Ariel. That's not what he's doing. Sure. Yeah. You know, that's okay. Yeah. You know, he's, he's sort of more on, I think he's kind of like a fan promoter. And I think now when you see him doing these press conferences for like the Nate Diaz, Jake Paul, um, he's hosting it. He's up on the dais and, you know, kind of the way he taught, he talks kind of like a promoter. And I think that's why it was so easy for Dana White to, to hate him because I think, <laughs> you know, in his heart, Ariel could be a promoter too. Ariel has that zest, that love, that optimism, that kind of, that, you know, excitement for what fighting is as a, as a mass entertainment the same, the same way that Dana has that. And so I think there's a little bit of like, they're a little too similar to each other to be comfortable for either one of them. And makes so sense. Kinda, it makes know, it's, sense. It's, yeah. Last thing on him, and, I, and this is going to sound like it's negative, but I don't mean it that way. Sure. And I'll tell you what I mean. I think Ariel likes being a victim. And here's what I mean by that. I think he's real. Like, I know of him because... Everyone was like, look at this bullshit UFC's doing to this poor kid when he got his his uh, credential pulled, right? I think he's yeah. figured out that he when he's on when he is in the role of the victim, he's built his brand. Dave Portnoy is like this at Barstool. You know, when everyone's yeah. coming at him, that's when he's grown the most. You know, yeah. um so I don't mean it negatively. I just get the feeling he there's a sweet spot there for him there. And he embraces that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. And leans I, into it. I don't quite buy that. Okay. I, don't, I don't quite buy that. All right, I, I understand fine. what you're saying. Yep. You know, I think, I think he's pretty, um, you think he's more think genuine a lot than of, I'm like, giving him credit for, I guess. Well, I mean, it's a difficult situation when you're, you're in a spot where someone powerful comes after you. And it's sort of like, how do you stick up for yourself? How do you be honest about disclosing what the conflict is to your audience? Without sounding like a victim, if but it hasn't just stopped over, with Dana know? White, I guess. How many time? How many different feuds has he been in? Besides Dana White, well, I don't think there's been that many. Not, not serious one. I, there's some other MMA writers that have some some issues with him. 
because he doesn't necessarily do, you know, like I think, um, you know, Mike Russell, who's another kind of longtime MMA reporter who did all this amazing work to unearth, you know, some conflicts that Ali Abdelaziz, who's one of the biggest managers right now, um, has, and, you know, some really ethically um, unflattering moves he's made at representing fighters and working also at the same time as a, a matchmaker for a promoter and all kinds of double dealing. Um, and then Ariel will have Ali on his show and then won't necessarily ask the hardest hitting questions or the follow up. We'll just sort of let things pass without challenging them. Um, so I think, you know, people kind of criticize him for being a little bit soft as an interviewer, which, you know, maybe that's fair. You know, we all have weak points. We're all, you know, if you step outside me, your front door. Yeah, believe me, I know. Yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah, who am I? And a lot of that criticism is valid, you know, all the way around for all of us. You know, there's all things we could get better at. We all have blind spots and things that we need to build, you know. And hey, look. You know, if, if Ariel's a professional victim, Dana White is a professional victim times 10. Right, and that's what I mean. I didn't mean for it to be negative. Mentality. Victim was a about, bad word, maybe. Victim you know, was a bad everyone's word. Everyone's against him, whether it's... You know, yeah. Yep. vaccine people or you know every which way so and i brought up portnoy because he, he does the same thing too but i i sure. don't i don't think it was negative look if he might be your best friend ariel for all i know so maybe i put you in a no, bad spot I've never I, met him. okay i don't know anything about him well i appreciate I'm not the biggest fan of him either I'm, I, okay you know, i just think that you know well i appreciate your world. honesty there interesting sure um again cage kings of the book it's awesome um i tried not to get I wanted to just kind of talk about UFC, and but there's great stuff in the book, and I mm. know uh, Michael's going to do a hundred interviews for it. So, you know, I tried to, I don't know, I tried to take a slightly different angle, but it, there's such awesome business stuff in here, the development of the company. There's great stuff on, you know, Rousey and some of the stars that they've had. It's it's really awesome. Uh, we were talking before, and I'll let you go on this. Maybe a last thing here. Mm. Uh, we were talking before bullshitting. You're in Benson or in Brooklyn. I was telling my family yeah. from Benzoners, and you mentioned that maybe in a different version of the book, one that maybe have been longer, um, the, the late great Bruno San Martino may have been a part of it. So I guess I'll just yeah. say what what can you expand on that a little bit, and what's the story there? Sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, before even way, 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 way back when it was like maybe eight or nine years ago, when I was still just beginning to collect notes for this, the original version of this book was. It wasn't a UFC history. It was an anthology of prize fighting throughout time for over the last thousand years. So I wanted each chapter to look at a, a famous sort of match in context of what it what it said about society at the time that it was taking place. And part of that would have been pro wrestling and looking at how pro wrestling fed into you know mixed martial arts and UFC and the Japanese MMA scene and sort of you know, the, the ongoing affinity with it. Um, because, you know, I think one of the biggest myths about MMA, and it, I think it's one the UFC likes to tell, is that, you know, it, it kind of just emerged out of the ether in 1993. There was no antecedent to it. There was no one had ever done this before. There was Ali Anoki, and then, you know, you fast forward 20 years. Um, but things like open format fights had been happening for centuries, for thousands of years. Um, one of the most interesting 
to me is um, this sport called gouging, which was popular in American colonial times, which was all about fish hooking. It was literally the object was to gouge your opponent in the eyes. And so the whole point was to try and defend against someone who wanted to, they didn't just want to punch you. They wanted to use their fingers to kind of claw your ear, or your nose or your eye. Um, and it had the same sort of like moral panic that the UFC produced in the nineties. And, you know, pro wrestling in the fifties, before even the fifties, it was, you know, the Bruno San Martino was one of the first celebrity kind of wrestlers, but even he came out of this traveling strongman tradition with like farmer burns and, you know, all the original, the original sort of catch wrestlers and, you know, I think there's there's a really interesting history to tell and an interesting continuity that takes you directly from people like that to, you know, your Tito Ortiz's, your Mark Coleman's, Mark Kerr's, Fedor Emelianenko. Uh, I think they all exist in a continuum. I, I think a lot of that history, if you read Josh Gross's book on the Ali Anoki fight, um, there's a lot of that background in there. I, there's um, another book that's really good that... Um, blanking on the name david thrasher i think wrote it mm. uh, it's called um his american masculinity and fighting sports um yeah it's it's a big history and you know there's a lot of different faces of this particular sport this approach to personas and violence throughout you know throughout time and you know Bruno San Martino was definitely one of the, the interesting ones because it was still kind of a gray zone where, you know, now everyone looks at wrestling and it's like, yes, it's fake, it's scripted, it's it's whatever. But that wasn't always the case. Was, right. You know, wrestling was as real as jujitsu or anything else. And in a lot of cases, you know, it's more effective or it had been a difference depending on who you talk to. Um, and so he really became prominent. He became sort of a celebrity at a time when there was still a lot of reality behind wrestling. And, um, you know, so he was one of the first, one of the first guys to really build up the sort of the narrative framing around like the actual grappling submission kind of locks. And Yeah. I mean, Bruno during uh, world war two, he, he had an a hit. interesting history that I didn't get to write <laughs> <laughs> it's too bad bruno is, is an unbelievable story you know, it's thing, yeah it's the beauty of history is no one ever has the full picture so true all we're doing is just adding little bricks right well hopefully you well, know one brick will inspire someone to come and make their own and add to it and, you know eventually we'll get a nice big colorful fully fleshed out kind of well uh, cage kings is a great brick uh, Cage Kings, how an unlikely group of moguls, champions, and hustlers transformed the UFC into a $10 billion industry. You can find Michael on Twitter. He's at Mike underscore T-H-O-M-S-E-N. The book comes out June 20th, so a couple weeks, and you can purchase it wherever you purchase books. It's available like in ebook form. If you're on Apple, you can go there. You can go to um, Amazon, of course, and buy it. Thanks so much for being on the show, Michael. I really appreciate yeah. it. Well, I really appreciate the time. It was great talking to you. I appreciate it your interest in the book and spending time reading it. it. It's always great to have people interested in the same stuff that, that uh, you are or I am anyway. So thanks. This is a lot of fun.
I want to thank Michael Thompson and Joshua Robinson for being on the podcast today. Don't forget, you can hear this episode and all episodes of the Sportscasters podcast on our SoundCloud page. It's soundcloud.com slash sports dash casters. You can also find me on Twitter. I'm at sports underscore casters there. I'm at sportscasters on Instagram. If you want to see pictures of Paula and Colston and highlights of Anthony playing hockey. Uh, You can also find me on Facebook. Search my name, Steve Bennett. All over social media for information about the Sportscasters pod. Don't forget to check out my other show that I do with Paula Bennett and Dave Rollins, the 24-inch podcast. Uh, We just put up a new episode a couple days ago talking about Hulk Hogan's first ever match versus Ric Flair in the WWF at 24-inch podcast on Twitter for more information about that. I'm also starting my first ever YouTube show thanks to the people over at the North-South Connection. I'm going to be starting a YouTube show. Uh, it's called 3x5, and each episode on the show will be three lists of five. One list will be sports, one list will be wrestling, as it is a wrestling page, and one list will be pop culture. Uh, the sports list will be brought to you by the 24 or by the sportscasters. The wrestling list brought to you by the 24-inch podcast and the other one, the pop culture, will be brought to you by the North-South Connection page. It's a fun little show, 15, 20 minutes, video. Um, the very first show, we're recording it this week, the pilot. And the lists are the top five Stanley Cup finals from 1993 on. That's the Canadian drought since a Canadian team last won it. Then the uh, pop culture ones, the top five. Um, summer blockbuster movies since it's around the time the summer blockbusters come out and then the uh, the last list is the top five coliseum home videos that i used to rent the wrestling videos i used to rent in at wegman's or blockbuster as a kid my lifeblood as a kid was renting wrestling videos it kept me kept me going that's what i did so so often um but uh, one last thing for me tonight, and I want to talk a little bit about the Oklahoma Sooners women's softball team, uh, which is undoubtedly the best softball program in the nation. They have won the national championship in 2016, 2017, 2021, and 2022. They had also won two before that. So they've won... Up to this point, one, two, three, four, five, six championships. And they are in the championship round again with a chance to three-peat. They were also runners-up in 2019. So they've been in the final. I don't think they had one in 2020. So they've been in every final since 2019. 2019, 20 was canceled. 21, 22, 23. Um... This season, they are 59 and 1. Wow. 59 and 1. And it hasn't been that close. They have been dummying teams, dummying them. And they have stormed through the College World Series, the Women's College World Series, with one, exce- one exception. Um, they played a game where they were down three runs. And it was the the last inning of the game. And 
they were down to their last strike twice against Clemson. And they hit a home run to tie it at seven and then walked it off in the ninth to save the streak and to move on. And then they beat Stanford twice. Or they beat, yeah, Stanford twice. Then they beat Tennessee. And now they're on to the final. What an unbelievable season they're having. I mean, they are absolutely dummying teams. They lost, I believe, their ninth game. And that was to Baylor. They lost by one run. And they have won every single game since. They are just absolutely demolishing everyone. 59-1. and 18 and 0 in conference, 19 and 0 at home, 26 and 0 on a neutral field. They've won 51 straight games going into the final. Some of their scores and I'm just scrolling through. Um 10 10 to 1, uh 14 to nothing, 18 to nothing, 9 to nothing, 13 to nothing, 9 to 3, 8 to nothing, 9 to 1, 16 to nothing, 14 to nothing. They just dummy teams, dummy them, beat them into oblivion. They're unbelievable. But for as good as they are, they're scrappy. They got a little scrap to them, and they celebrate a lot, and they're they're cocky, they're bodacious. And I don't even use the word cocky in like a negative sense. They get they work a walk, they slam the bat, they pump up the bench. They get a single, they pump up the bench. They hit a homer, they all come out of the dugout. They strike someone out. They stare you down. They never miss an opportunity to celebrate. And you know what? Good for them. You don't like it? Beat them, right? Beat them. Beat them if you don't like it. And I, I like I don't have a problem with it, right? Like, you know, if you if you don't want them to celebrate, beat them. Uh, Patty Grasso, or excuse me, Patty Gasso is the coach. Obviously, she's built a dynasty. Um, And she tells her players, you must be unapologetic for the way you play the game with energy and outwardly celebrate their triumphs, even if their triumph is as seemingly unimportant as a walk. She goes on to say, because women have worked so hard to get here, yet they still... Okay, so let's hold on to that thought. So I'm going to talk about that in a second. Um, 51 game-winning streak... And they dummy teams. They beat them by a lot. And guess what? Other teams don't like them much. And the fans of other teams don't like them. And they're annoyed by them. Right? And so I read today something that disappointed me. And it was girls on the team saying that they're held to a double standard. And that the major league players wouldn't get treated this way. And I just have to say, my whole life, I've been hearing about how old school baseball, the mentality, the fans, the people are too stiff. And they criticize when people flip the bat. Think about all the criticism that people have gotten for flip for bat, for bat flips. Uh, Ronald Acuna, the way he runs the bases. Mets fans hate 
Ronald Acuna for this. Ladies, this is not, and I hope that doesn't sound patronizing the way I said ladies. Sooners, boomer sooners, be bodacious and know that they're talking about you because they can't beat you. Because you're living rent-free in their head. Because you frustrated them to the point on the field where the only way they feel like they can get at you is off of it with their chirping and with their criticisms. And no, I'm sorry, it's not unique to women's sports. And women's sports is growing. I bet this College World Series does a great number for ESPN. The college basketball tournament did a great number for ESPN. Sports have villains. And when you go 59-1, and you become the villain. The Yankees in the 90s were the evil empire. And villains get criticized. And you should embrace it. And I just can't get into women's sports if any time I criticize someone, I'm called sexist or saying I'm having a double standard of some kind. It's a it women's softball is an awesome game. It's super fun to watch. Especially as a guy who cheers for Oklahoma. My college roommate, she played a little bit for Fredonia. She she was a really good player at Eden, played for Fredonia. We don't talk as much as I'd like, but every time we use it gives us a chance to connect. I love the sport. I really do. It's great energy. I like the way they pitch. I wish there was more 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 like in play play. Seems like it's a lot of strikeout or home run, but hey, MLB has that problem too. Uh but they don't you don't need you don't need to go to this. I just I think it's so lame and I just think it's wrong. I think that major league baseball players are criticized all the time for the things that the OU team is criticized for. Right? Baseball comes from a place where you hit a home run, you you set the bat down, you you jog pretty fast around the bases, you give a high five to your teammate and you sit in the dugout. I don't know. Right? Bat flips are bad. We they get well there's a certain guard that thinks they're bad, and there's a certain guard that doesn't. Some people think think it's exciting. Football players like T.O. or Joe Horn, they get criticized for their outlandish celebrations. Some people think they're exciting. Some people like Barry Sanders and Marcus Colston who hand the ball to the ref. Some people like Ezekiel Elliott who jumps into the into the um you know the donation ornament or whatever. People are criticized for celebrating on sacks, on second down, or special teams tackles. They get criticized. People don't like it. I mean, I don't know. This happens all the time in sports. There's no double standard here. And searching for those things, which may or may not exist otherwise, I think it just holds it back. It makes me want to turn it off. I don't know. Maybe I'm unfair here. If you think I am, you can email me, the sportscasters at gmail.com. But I don't know. This is not what I want to read about going into the into the finals. The team's freaking awesome. They're 59 and 1. They win two more games. They're gonna finish 61 and 1, three time defending champions. The greatest softball team of all time, probably. Don't worry about that. 
they're not criticizing you because you're a woman. They're criticizing you because you, they can't beat you and you live in their head. They're criticizing you for the same reasons they criticize Ronald Acuna and other players who are boisterous about their celebrations. Right? It's one thing to celebrate a walk-off Grand Slam in the World Series. Touch them all, Joe. Nobody criticized his trip around the bases. He just had a walk-off to win the World Series. But they might criticize Pete Alonso for the display he put on for a two-run home run in the fourth inning today in a game his team eventually lost. That's sports. We criticize our rivals because we hate them. All of them. Good luck to the Sooners this week. Finish it off. 61-1, and three-time champs, the greatest dynasty in the history of women's softball.